The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. You're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back. We're now our number two, this live broadcast. Thank you very much for rejoining us here at TNT, today's News Talk. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We are streaming out live on multiple audio streams. Of course, you want to go to the mothership, that's tntradio.live, and you want to join the TNT chat community there. It's the red bubble in the lower right-hand corner of your screen. That's where you want to be during the program because that's where all the action is uh, in terms of chatter, debate, uh, opposition research. There's MEMS in there. There's just a lot of good banter, quality banter in the TNT chat community. We have a good community for this program during our live broadcast. You can also watch us on the live streams on YouTube uh, and also other fine video sharing platforms as well. You'll see all the links at TNT's main website, tntradio.live. Go there and get linked up. Now, uh, again, to uh, and fail uh, investigative journalist in the first hour talking about in the scenes, interference, meddling by domestic or foreign. Uh, we'll talk more about that in the coming months. Sure. Uh, welcome on to the program right now. However, investigative journalist uh, and radio host Trish Wood joining us on the live link right now. Trish, thank you very much for coming on the program this week. Nice to see you, Patrick. It's, I, I'm glad I get to do this once in a while because I feel like I'm with a bit of a fellow traveler existing in this world where there's this terrible thing going on and nobody's really thinking about it the same way many of the smarter journalists are. So this is a refreshing for me. So in terms of the big thing going on, let's talk about the uh, the main issue right now, uh, what's happening yeah. in the Middle East, Trish. Um, just give us your sort of you know, your impressions, your thoughts uh, from the last time we spoke. Obviously, things have developed a little bit there, but it's also stagnated as well. Um, there's not a lot of movement, although we're very encouraged by South Africa's effort in the international courts of justice. Where are you at with this right now? Well, it changes minute by minute, right? It's kind of like a bad love affair where you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. Like I wake up some mornings and I think, well, that this can't possibly go on any longer because a certain thing happened. But by by mid-afternoon, I'll witness that guy in the State Department briefing room responding to, well, for instance, the charge of this poor Palestinian guy who was waving a white flag and was shot in front of an ITV freelance cameraman. Um, and, and, and him saying, well, Israel's our partner and we don't know about that and I haven't seen it. And it, it's like cognitive dissonance because the kind of outrage that should be being expressed that I believe mirrors the feelings, the, the feelings of most good people. Nobody could be unmoved by that unless there's something seriously wrong with them. So, so I see those things and I think, how are they getting away from that? And I, but I will say that briefing in particular did one thing that gave me hope. The media did what they used to do in the olden days when I was in the media doing these scrummy type of interviews over someone who was supposed to be accountable. The first reporter asked the question and he dodged it with, you know, long answers that meant nothing. And then the second reporter picked it up and then the third reporter picked it up and the fourth reporter picked it up. And that's really a good sign because it means that the reporters who are working that particular beat in DC are starting to get a little bit 
antsy about the fact that nobody's answering questions about what are clearly war crimes. And that was the question, right? If, if what you see on the tape is real, there is some pushback on that. Now, I noticed on Twitter a couple of minutes ago, they're saying it was a Pallywood production or something. But, <clears throat> but if that video is real, and there's no reason right now, I think, to think it wasn't, it's a war crime, plain and simple. You can't really argue that point. And, and the way that these spokesmen for the Biden administration deal with these things in a kind of a robotic, talking pointsy, inhumane way, it's, it's hard to watch. And I actually think it's not good, not good for the country. Yeah, it's so it's so funny as well uh, how the the U.S. government has been inundated uh, with evidence uh, on the war crimes front. I mean, yeah. it, it's literally that that file is is just growing every day. Uh, what they submitted to the Hague, um, which everybody can see, they South Africa did a good presentation on it, but that was only up to December. That was yeah. only uh, basically that was a file that ended on like you know December tenth or December fourteenth, and already Trish uh, add another month to that, another two months to that. I mean, I, I, I never think there's never in history been so much evidence of war crime and of genocide, if we want to be more accurate, uh, than, than anything else in history. So um, I, I honestly think, Trish, that this is causing a paralysis in the system. Um, this could even uh, really gum up the wheels of justice because it's just so over the top and overwhelming. Normally what happens, Trish, in these situations in history is one force would come and obliterate another force um, yeah. who, is, who is doing this. That doesn't look like that's going to happen. Israel's not going to get obliterated. So they're able to carry on with this. So we're in a kind of very funny situation in human history, Trish, that I don't think a lot of people are prepared for, do not know what to do, uh, do not know how to react. Um, and we're, we're being forced to cope with something that's just, I don't think it's a natural thing to have no, it's to a process. Trauma. Yeah, yeah it, it's ahead. absolutely a trauma. And I, I do want to say, based on what you, you were just alluding to, it, it's the idea that what is going on here, really, to put it in a very crude way, Israel is shooting fish in a barrel. That's what they're doing. They can't, these people can't leave. They don't, aside from the kind of street fighting that they're doing with the, the rebels or whatever we're calling them, um, the, the civilians are basically trapped. They can't leave. Um, and they're being killed indiscriminately in a place in which they're kind of encapsulated. So that's the other part of this that's really kind of awful. And I did want to say one thing because I keep shouting out the journalists there. I admire them so very deeply, and I'm really angry that the journalists in the West seem to not care one whit about these people who are actually doing brave things under the most extremely different. They're not staying at night in fancy hotels like we did when we were in the field and going to the bar at night and then having a steak. They're starving along with everybody else. They're being bombed. And I noticed that um, Motaz, who is a big hero of this, the young I think he was posting mostly on Instagram, but some on Twitter too. He left for undisclosed reasons, but I would not be surprised. He is in, I believe it's Qatar for mental health reasons. I, I think you can't survive this mentally. And Wael Dadu, the guy who also should be the journalist of the year for survival, his wife and kids were killed and he was on air when it was announced. And then he was shot and his cameraman died because they couldn't get in to rescue him. The Israeli forces were blocking the road. And then his son, who was also a journalist, was killed. And he's still standing, unbelievably 
still standing. And he apparently is, is kind of off now getting some kind of medical treatment. But I just need to shout those guys out because the rest of the Western media is not doing it. And uh, I think it's really important to, to say that. No, Motaz has been unbelievable, and you know he's like uh, uh, the people, Palestinian people. There, the, he's a treasure for them. You know, like yeah, so highly that. regarded. When 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 it was when it was uh, looked like his account might have been shut down, or mm -hmm. uh, something would have happened with his account, whatever's hacked or suppressed, whatever, they're all up in arms. He's literally one of the key voices getting their story out, getting those images out. So um, I, I think he was being targeted by the uh, Israeli forces. They were tracking him. He was definitely on their hit list. So, I mean, this is another thing, you know, the targeting of journalists. This is like so beyond the pale, isn't it, for Western values, right? Our democratic values in the West. And here you got plenty of evidence that that is the case, not just the journalists, Trish, the families of the journalists yeah. as well yeah. in Gaza. Unbelievable. And I've not heard anything. You know, it, it, If it comes up in those State Department briefings, it's not coming up in the White House briefings, by the way. Hardly any of this is. It's only the, like you said, those those dissident journalists in the State Department briefings, yeah. the Sam Husseinis of the world, the Max yeah. Blumenthal's of the yeah. world. These are the, maybe Matt Lee, I think, has woken up on this issue recently. Um, but nothing in the White House, nothing on, on, on Israel. Nothing. And and I don't know. It's it, this is maybe the nadir of legacy media as we're watching this too. They, th this war, if that's what we're even calling it, may also end the credibility of these people because someday somebody's going to wake up and say this is well maybe tomorrow, right? This was a genocide. Maybe tomorrow, and we'll be back asking all the same questions we did after the Holocaust, which is where was the New York Times? Where were all the people? Why weren't you know why weren't we helping more than we did earlier, sooner, right? And so I hope we're not doing this again, which kind of reminds me to say something controversial, but I can't let it go, which was Elon at Auschwitz, right? He he's got to settle some issues with his advertisers. He was being picked on uh, unmercilessly by uh, Media Matters who are completely dishonest about being anti-Semitic. I don't think he's anti-Semitic, but I think that for him to go and make that appearance at Auschwitz with Ben Shapiro, who is a cheerleader to what is going on in Gaza, rabid, and not just rabid, but lying. I mean, yeah. we're now, I'm going to talk about this in a minute, Israeli media is now saying October 7th atrocity stories are not exactly what, you know, what you and I and Max have been saying since I published first, first on that October 13th, so, and got a lot of pushback, and you did too, I saw your tweet when you were talking about the he had babies, right? And Max was on it. And so we all have been talking about that with a reason. And the reason being that, and I think this is going to come out too, and I might try to find sort of an historical anthropologist on this to talk about it. I think that, that Netanyahu and his Israeli cabinet, some of whom are Kahanist nightmares, used the atrocity propaganda fake stories to create a mass hysteria event within the country because people in israel also are not behaving in a normal way and i know they're afraid but we saw a lot of irrationality during covid times and the pushing of fear porn and fear propaganda and netanyahu is a lot of things but i don't think he's stupid and i don't think he is above terrifying beyond 
what was already a terrifying and horrible event, more with these pieces of of stories of mostly about children, like only one baby was killed. Not, I mean, that's too many, but only one. We know her name. We know what happened. So that's in the record. So they're still talking about the 40 beheaded babies. They're still talking about the baby in the oven. They're still talking about the woman having her baby. I mean, all that stuff. And there's a reason for it. It's because that is the ultimate taboo. Only cutting off heads is a huge taboo, obviously. And, and hurting children, torturing children is a huge taboo. So they use that in order to gin up as much hatred and fear to dehumanize the Palestinians as they possibly could. And I believe Netanyahu had a plan. I, and I can't prove this, but I hope that one day when cooler heads prevail in their actual investigations, we will learn that October 7th was not at all how it was portrayed to us that the, the friendly fire was probably bigger than we know, that the Hannibal Directive, which is, yeah, you can kill civilians if it means getting the bad guy, even indiscriminately, will have been in play, which they're now kind of talking about. So that story will not be as big. And I also think that there, there may be a point where a decision is taken where Netanyahu said, hey, let's make our move. We wanted to get rid of these guys. We want to get them out of, of Gaza. We want to get them out of here. This is our chance. Because I don't believe, I, I do think people can run with fake stories just because they're scared and things take hold of them. But a lot of these stories were perpetrated by military people. So it really makes you wonder if this wasn't the plan that after October 7th, Netanyahu convened a meeting and said, okay, let's get them out. We're going to go for broke. We're going to rubbleize a Gaza. But the only way we can do it is to convince people that the people who live in Gaza are monsters, the worst of the I, worst. And I, I, I think I, that's what's happened. I, I think that's an institutional, that's baked into all their institutions, that's into their military strategy, just that they have more opportunities to to amp that up. But that's actually part and parcel of their doctrine uh, of information warfare. It, it, according to their doctrine, anything is permissible uh, as long as it furthers uh, the ends. Look, I'm talking with investigative journalist and radio host Trish Wood right now. We're talking about the situation, guys. Let's also talk about uh, the country of Canada on the other side, Justin. Trudeau. He's also weighing in on the uh, genocide convention case with South Africa. We'll hit that and other uh, breaking news uh, regarding Canada on the other side. I'm Patrick Kennington, your host. This is TNT. Today's news talk. We'll be right back. TNT's Pella Neuroth-Taylor. We, we need to look, do a lot of deconstruction of these phrases and, and really think about what it means because what does far right mean? I, I'd say that far right means anything that you don't like and um, it's just a label, a bit like the, the Chinese under Mao, their state press used to call uh, anyone who was an ideological opponent, capitalist pig dogs, whatever. And it was just meant to evoke a response and it was a signal from the rulers to the rule that this is what you should think without actually having to think. It's, it's, it's a, meant to evoke a sort of Pavlovian reaction that you're a, these are bad guys. And uh, a moderate, in, in, in our, lingo i mean let's see it's foreign coverage the bbc will say the moderate blah 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 party in the third world meaning well the guys we approve of and then the extremist is someone we don't approve of helen neuroth taylor on today's news talk tnt radio works because of its ability to personalize to the listener what's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it 
You know, people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is, how ubiquitous it is. It's in our cars, it's in our homes. There are so many new ways to access it. It's everywhere. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. At the top of the hour, we'll keep on top of the news. It's the most important thing we can do. On today's News Talk, TNT Radio. All right, folks. All right, welcome back. I'm Patrick Hanks, your host. We're still in the second hour of this live broadcast. Uh, we're going to go back to our guest right now, uh, investigative journalist and radio host Trish Wood, joining us on the line right now. Yeah, Trish, uh, I agree with uh, what you're saying there. Uh, it is uh, inconscionable the amount of fake news and fabricated reporting that has been generated uh, by Israel, Israel, their government, their media arms, their spokespeople. Uh, Elon, Elon Levy is like the British uh, Israeli spokesperson there for, for, for Netanyahu. He put out some absolute howlers on social media and erase them, yeah. by the way, because uh, yeah. of the backlash. But I mean, this is what you're dealing with here in terms of the level of uh, deceit, uh, the level of propaganda. Uh, it's unprecedented. Uh, and it has uh, has induced a state of hysteria uh, in Israeli society, um, in the U.S., in the West as well. A lot of people bought into this juggernaut too. Um, but it, it has been done before in in the past. It's just this one is really really special on, on many different levels. So in Canada, your country, um, your prime minister uh, was asked directly about whether this was a genocide in Gaza. As this is the biggest story in the world in The Hague, South Africa's lodged this case, and a lot of people were shocked at the comments by Justin Trudeau, basically denying that uh, there's any genocide there. He was visibly uncomfortable, too, when he was asked that yeah. question. What, what are your thoughts on, on Trudeau on this issue? Well, let me just start by saying he's visibly uncomfortable when he's asked any hard question. I mean, he's a drama teacher, right? So he's in over his head on most policy questions. There, there's no... There's no issues about that. We're all kind of used to it. But the problem with that response for me is that he is much more far left in his worldview. I disagree with many, many things that he thinks and has done in the past. But I thought about this, well, at least he's a progressive lefty. So like a stopped clock who is right twice a day, he'll get Gaza right because most of the people supporting Palestinians right now are left of center. The conservatives have all gone crazy and are screaming for more and more and more bombardments. So I thought, well, at least this is one thing in his whole time as prime minister that I can agree with him on. And he got it wrong. And I think the reason he did get it wrong is because um, we all feel very strongly, or those of us who are wide awake and observing the world scene, that he is being puppeteered you know, by the globalists. And he's quite proud of it. He He's a guy who loves his motorcades. His very own brother, who's quite an interesting guy, told me that what the prime minister likes most about being prime minister, that might be hyperbole, but likes a lot about being prime minister, is the motorcades. And he's legendary for having these 20-car, blacked-out window suburbans with 98 million guys with you know radios surrounding him so he loves that high profile stuff he loves davos he loves being part of that crew and um and so we saw in davos just recently where they are their sympathies lie and their sympathies lie with israel on this so that's where i think it's coming from and 
I, I mean, I also think he's not the only one. There are a lot of people supporting Israel right now, and I'm surprised by it. So he's he's not the only one. Bobby Kennedy Jr., I was like, what? Excuse me? I couldn't, I nearly fell out of my chair when he's, what did he say? They're the most pampered people in the world. And he's a smart guy. So, you know, th- this is like, I think Whitney Webb goes too far with some of the stuff she says, but her basic premise that maybe everybody's being blackmailed kind of resonates for me a bit on this issue because people, and even Elon, people are saying things in support of something that as human beings, I never ever would have thought that they they would support. And that includes our prime minister. So I don't actually literally think everybody's being blackmailed, but I don't know how else to to say it. I think in his case, it's it's for sure, it's trying to to please the you know, the Gulf Stream jet crowd who fly into Davos. And the Israeli lobby is very powerful in Canada. Very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So so he's he's going to get his earful uh, from those organizations for sure. Yeah. And then the other thing that's happening to him right now, which is quite fun, is that um, Tucker Carlson is here. He's in Alberta. And our media here is so like legacy media is just so out of it that a lot of people here watched Tucker, especially on Fox News, his uh, monologues. I thought they were terrific. And he's a very, very profound critical thinker. And there were days when I would say to myself around three, four in the afternoon, I wonder what Tucker's going to talk about tonight. And I hope it's this because I don't know what I think yet. And maybe he'll clarify it. I'm sad that he doesn't do as many of those as he used to. He does more interviews now, but I love those. And so Canadians were very addicted to Tucker and are. And so he's doing, um, he sold out show in like a rock place, like a big stadium. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. And of course he spends the whole time on the stage crapping on the prime minister. So that's fun mm-hmm. for people out West. And then the other bad thing that's happened to him, but we were all screaming yay, and oddly happened, I was on the phone with Tamara Leach, who was one of the uh, leaders of the trucker convoy. And she went, oh, my God, you won't believe what just happened. And I said, what? And she got a message from somebody she knew on the law team saying that the Emergencies Act, which was when the prime minister sent in the horses and the cops in black block attire and froze the bank accounts and all these things that completely dramatized the country to end a legal protest. Uh, Justice Mosley found that the Emergencies Act was illegal. So they didn't have a grounds to introduce it that didn't violate the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That is our first big legal victory on any of this stuff in three years all the COVID lawsuits most of them now i think a couple of them they may have gone ahead but they were completely overruled they didn't want to hear some of them when they did they sided with the you know the other people anyway so so this is a big big moment and i heard from a lot of my listeners that they felt for the first time that they could exhale as a Canadian again, because maybe their institutions were going to get it right. So that's not a small thing, losing this judgment. They said they were going to appeal. Christia Freeland came out and said she looked pretty shell-shocked, actually. He pushed her out. He didn't even come out. She did. Um, That they're going to appeal it. But I think this is kind of rock solid. And there are some calls that they need a leadership review I think if he was an honorable person, which I don't believe he is, he would just step down. But this is a huge rebuke from an honorable justice. And let me just say, 
you know, he probably lives in Ottawa, this justice, and the convoy is not very well liked there. So this ruling means that poor Justice Mosley is not going to get invited to very many good dinner parties in the near future. You know, people are going to be mad at him for it. It went against the prevailing elite zeitgeist is what I'm saying. So it was a big, big win. And we were all really happy about it. Oh, there's a lot of Canadians that are backing uh, that judgment. That's for sure, right across the country. So the people are with them, but the elite are not. Uh, it's a very familiar uh, theme, sadly, Trish, that we're seeing more often on all these yeah. issues. Yeah. yeah. But, well, that's uh, what happened. Yeah. Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, no I was going to say, well, that's what happened to the truckers because they didn't, I don't think they realized when they were going into Ottawa what they were going into. They were blue collar kind of uh, rational thinking saying, you know, we're calling BS. And I believe myself that frequently working people get stuff right, that the PhDs get wrong. I see that now more than ever. I don't think they realized when they were heading to Ottawa that it's a city that actually is the antithesis of what they are, right? So it's bureaucrats who make a lot of money, who were paid to stay home during COVID, full salary, on their Pelotons, ordering Uber Eats, working from home, right? So they were all totally groovy while everybody else was like, oh, this is terrible, right? So so the truckers show up and you immediately had a clash, a kind of a clash of civilizations. I call it a bit of a class struggle too, because the the critiques by Ottawa citizens about the truckers are mostly silly. Oh, I smelt diesel fumes or the honking was terrible or something on a major issue of public health, right? So, so there really was uh, a case of two solitudes when, when these things match. And poor um, Justice Mosley lives in Ottawa where they're hated. So he's not going to be a very popular guy right now. Yeah, well, look, uh, this is just indicative, I think, of uh, so many different issues. Uh, we have a similar dynamic in America and Europe as well. Populism yeah. being suppressed. Uh, yeah. and a technocracy being elevated and they're defending their citadel, their cathedral. Uh, but this is a great judgment, very positive development there uh, in Canada. Uh, investigative journalist, radio host Trish Wood. Trish, give us a shout out where people can find your work uh, before we go. Right. So I'm on Substack. Trish Wood is Critical. And I have a podcast, which is also called Trish Wood is Critical. The audio is on every platform and the video right now we're carrying on my Substack page and we're moving it to YouTube soon-ish, as soon as I can figure out how to work my camera properly. Not easy. Well, we got you tagged also on our X Twitter uh, platform there on our show post. Yes. Follow follow Trish there for her hot takes, for her updates, for her links as well. Thank you, Trish, for joining us. And also, we're going to take a break right now and uh, catch up with our research assistant for the show on the other side. Two big stories, the farmers' protests in Europe and the UK conscription. Are they serious? We'll find out more from Christian James on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be right back after these messages. When I had my heart event close to four years ago, I was at the gym, thought I deserve a coffee, and thought I'll top up with fuel, ordered a coffee. But while I was pumping fuel, I started to get chest pains. Then it got worse and worse and worse. So then I was leaning on the counter thinking, yeah, something's not quite right. So then I went to wait for the coffee, and that's when it really, really hit. And Joy just, you know, mouthed, do you need an ambulance? And I remember nodding. I wasn't even thinking about a heart attack. I just thought, something is seriously wrong with me here. So when the cardiologist came to see me, she informed me that I'd had what they call a widow-maker heart attack. Bit of a shock when someone says, you know, you nearly died. 
<laughs> Everybody should be aware of all the symptoms of a heart attack that women can have that aren't typical of the shoulder pain, the right arm pain. I go to the gym, I do yoga, Pilates, I swim, I go on bike rides, and yet I still had a heart attack. You just don't know it could be you. Most people are unaware that bad bacteria can grow quickly in food that's stored, prepped or cooked incorrectly, and that can lead to food poisoning. To avoid bad bacteria, always make sure your hands and cooking utensils are clean. Keep raw meat and chicken away from food that won't be cooked. Run your fridge at or below 5 degrees Celsius and use a meat thermometer to ensure your meat's being cooked to at least 75 degrees Celsius. For more tips on keeping bad bacteria at bay, visit foodsafety.asn.au. I'm Sandra, this is Jorge, and we were adopted in 2019. I remember when they first came to us, Michael was already a teenager. The whole cliche of they're so lucky to have you guys and it's no. the other way around. They have changed our family for the better. They chose to love us, they didn't have to. They chose us, family. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit adoptuskids.org. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, folks. We're in the final segment of the final hour of this live broadcast here on the Patrick Henningsen Show, live and direct on TNT, Monday to Friday, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 4 p.m. till 6 p.m. UK time and everything else in between. Thank you to everybody in the TNT chat community. In our chat room, it is bustling as usual. Hello, you guys. I hope you're doing well uh, in there. I want to bring on to the program right now our research assistant for the show, Christian James. There's a couple of big stories that are Christian's been following and working on. He's actually got a piece which he'll be publishing very soon at 21st Century Wire on this major European farmers movement, Christian. Uh, it's spread. It's been going on for two years or three years, actually, uh, to be to be honest. But uh, the latest round in Germany has really captured the attention uh, more than ever of the European and world media, Christian. Just walk us through this story, uh, how, it's, how this has built up where it started, and where do you think it's heading and why? Well, what we have really is, um, I think there's, a, there's an interesting framing in the media right now, who are those who are talking about it mainstream, those who are talking about it legacy-wise, and those who are digging in. There's actually different levels of a different kind of story happening. One, of course, the, the key one is around uh, subsidies and fuel. Some believe that there's a, there's a tax situation, and suddenly there, there is... Um, a, an issue regarding food availability and the farmers of course are very keen to put their view forward that of course stripping down the ability to plant crop um, is going to have a disastrous situation in the future um, one of the issues that does remain that comes out of a uh, sunny out of germany there's an issue that france also faces and that is uh it's cheap stock coming from the ukraine see part of the issue here is it is it is not very well uh, spoken about is that uh, the eu and the ukraine post going into the situation of the war over there, they have the ability to export stock at a really low cost and really low value, undercutting um, any local production. Um, I, I listened to an interview a couple of days ago, talking about how in France right now, um, basically 55% of the poultry in France uh, is entirely comes um, from exporting, sorry, importing, sorry, into the country because it, it's cheaper than it is to produce locally. So farmers, rightfully so, are upset, they're angry, they're frustrated. You have the situation also, as you and I have discussed many times, of how there is a they want to reduce uh, the capacity for farms by 30, 
by 70% in some cases in regards to the, the larger farms, the small uh, and medium-sized businesses. Uh, they're struggling against what effectively is environmental policy, top-down driven, it's crushing the, their ability to make money. So you have lots of different issues that are happening simultaneously. You have, um, certainly within the UK, you have a different issue. You have... Um, you have in Scotland, for instance, they were frustrated, but they've kind of jumped on board with the farmers' protest. That is, they are protesting um, the beavers being reintroduced into their environment and the ability for them to block up water. They don't. They mm. feel that the government has not channeled that information to those people. So obviously, out in the last few days, they have joined the farmers' protests in much the same way. They're in the tractors. They've plowed down to their local parliament building, spread muck everywhere, and it looks like it's part of the same protest. Uh, in in England itself, we. We've had a situation down in London where on Tuesday, um, a large number of farmers rolled down to Tupolent, down to uh, Downing Street. What they did there, they planted 49 scarecrows to represent how 49% of UK farmers have uh, put forward to the farmers union here that they're ready to walk away from farming entirely due to the fact that there doesn't appear to be a future in it. In the same regards, in the same framing, therefore, of the issues that they're facing in Europe. So although they are, there is similar issues, they are lots of different people walking with the same overall kind of archetype of farmers protest, as we have seen that undercut that hashtag is trending, is very powerful. Lots of people are, are putting forward their grievances in the way that they can. One uh, aspect that did find really interesting is in Lithuania. They are also facing a farmers protest, but they're protesting for a slightly different reason. The reason they're protesting is, of course, is Russia is um, going obviously out to the sea. They're, they're sending their exports through the country. The government has allowed that in Lithuania to happen. However, the farmers there are upset that it is. So again, it's 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 jumping on the bandwagon of frustration under the hashtag of farmers protest. Lots of different reasons coming together under a, a kind of blanket banner that appears to be uh, Europe wide. I mean, I've seen messages coming out of the likes of um, Estonia. I've seen issues coming out of. Um, what did I see the other day? Uh, Moldova talking about it as well. Poland and um, Romania also having the similar issues um, with uh, exports. Sorry, imp exports from the Ukraine coming to their country, undercutting them, and the governments of their respective countries aren't giving them the support that they feel they deserve. Not only the undercutting of that, and well, well pointed out, Christian, on the Ukraine issue, that Polish farmers are also protesting. Yes. They had a major story. They shut the border down between Poland uh, and Ukraine with the lorries. Yes. But it, it's not just the 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 flooding it with cheap product, but some of it has been deemed unsafe by European regulators. So there's something in there. I think it's a banned pesticide that they're using in Ukraine. There's other right, issues yes. too, like you know depleted uranium that might come into the picture later on uh, as we get to a fuller picture of the environmental devastation of the war going forward. But so that's interesting because you know Brussels, they basically opened the door to Europe for Ukraine. I mean, they're almost Schengen and everything but name. Uh, in terms of the access, in terms of movement, and they want to open it up to products as well. That's one part of it. But the other part of it that's uh, interesting, Christian, is um, food security is like a big buzzword these days. You know, the build back better buzzword, sustainable food security, and all the rest of it. But they're doing every policy they're pursuing, the governments in the EU and Britain too, seem to be pushing in the wrong direction. They seem to be pushing in the area of like, importing cheap substitutes or actually christian it's it, it's kind of like looking like the bugs 
the bugs are like in the background there as like the alternative down the road. I mean, it, it seems to all be pointing in this direction a little bit build back better ish, bit great yeah, reset ish. Yeah, yeah, we can certainly talk about that when we talk about great reset. We talk, uh, obviously, over in Davos, there was a reports that came out that contained the terms such as alternative proteins, you know, strip back stock, <laughs> uh, where we are seeing basically replacement food or, uh, because what we have there is a replacement for a problem that's man-made in the first place. And that exactly. man-made issue, of course, here is the fact that the countries, certainly we've seen from the from the Netherlands, we saw it in France, we saw it in Germany, we saw it in Holland, we saw it now in the UK. They want to reduce our food production ability. Now, I did wonder why they would want to do that. Of course, we can say that, you know, they're against us. They don't want us to have as much food availability. And I think that that is part of the issue. I think they clearly want to create an interdependence on the countries. When there's less abundance and when there's less availability, there's less ability to, to trade and stock. But what stock there is, is much, much lower. So the stock value prices go up. So what you find is that you have more for less. You have less stock availability. So you have the profit of the, that stock that is there is much, much higher. And I think that plays into it as well. I think clearly there is a game of a, you know, money going on here, as well as the net zero aspect, as well as the uh, the farm subsidies issues. But but like you said there, there clearly is a nudge towards it, all kind of aligning in a certain direction. And that certainly is not going to be the good for many people across Europe. Um, crushing the ability for, for stock and trade, for smuggling for small family, medium-sized businesses, farmers, even large um bigger companies you know who obviously have um wide availability and obviously exporting and importing ability they're, they're feeling the crush quite a lot they're having to still reduce their livestock they're still having to reduce their stock capacity i mean these companies may not survive in this environmental um situation that they're finding themselves being pushed into there's that and also the you know so you've got two things you've got that wef agenda pushing this as well you've got the kind of the, who knows christian you know maybe legitimate environmental concerns about the effect of uh big agra chemicals and nitrate products on the environment this is a legitimate area of inquiry okay especially when we're talking about water tables and things like that so and and massive industrial scale livestock farming uh also has a lot of environmental uh a blowback as well on that so you know those are like on the surface very legitimate uh concerns and issues but the problem is christian you know we've spoke to many organic uh, farmers on this issue including like the pioneer of british organic farming julian rose and yes. it's really a question of methods like you can still have farming you can still have livestock but you know what products are you using what are the methods in which you're producing uh and are these big corporate monopolies who have created huge amount of inequity in the agri big agri market and i think that's also one of the problems as well is that a lot of these uh smaller farmers uh are having problems competing with the monopolies that have gamed the whole market basically so there's a couple of those other issues that are not actually being seriously addressed it seems like all the focus is on certain uh, certain ones you know sustainable development uh rightfully so uh wef diktats etc but those the, those big sort of issues of like you know monopolies corporate monopolies those are the guys with power though when it comes to government decision making isn't it go ahead yeah no it's, it certainly is that they do have the ability to you know work together and to push what potentially might be an agenda um i've seen certainly pictures and videos and as i'm sure many listeners and viewers have of the, the many it seems to focus around farmers saying 
you need availability of food. You know, the future is, is food, really, food security. Um, food sovereignty is something that a lot of countries talk about. So the UK talks about food sovereignty quite a bit. Um, but what you find is that if, if we are to go down these lines of narratives where you have countries and certainly regions stripping down their stock availability, um, potentially it might get rid of borders because you have to rely on each other. You have to almost merge together to have the available stock required for your populace and your population and your animal feed and your stock. So I do wonder how that plays into it as well. Is it is it the ability um, for a top-down organization to say, well, we've got to strip away these borders to make sure we've got enough food for everybody? And there needs to be sustainability for all. And that's certainly a, a thread I saw obviously circulating on X a couple of days ago. Um, but what we've also seen is that there's it's not just in Europe this is being faced. I saw a story coming out of Bolivia facing much the same issue over there. Um, slightly different angle, but again, it's hashtagged with farmers' protests. So that visibility, that social media traction is certainly there. You have certainly people from the um, over Mendelez, who is the former uh, president prime minister over there. So, of course, he was ousted a couple of years ago in regards to what some would say is a coup, uh, but he's very popular with the people, the peasants. Um, and that's their terminology. They uh, they have their um, the single confederation of peasant workers of Bolivia, which basically is their uh, largest union. They have um, formed together to basically block the the main highways and the throughways of Bolivia, saying that you know the current uh, president who's in there is there by illegal means. But again, it's hashtagged on to the same topic, so it, it trends and threads. So what we have here, I think, you have inspiration happening sporadically uh, through the diaspora of social media. There are lots of different reasons all walking together down the same umbrella path of the farmers' protest. So I think the peasants, they're also, yeah, oh, the, the peasants, peasants, the peasants, not just in South America. That's interesting. They call themselves that, Christian. But uh, the, the the average farmers, small, medium sized holdings in Britain, for instance, they're complaining that they're peasants, and and many of them have become sort of almost sharecroppers to these big agri companies that are or the Bill Gates of the world buying up farmland. And you have to buy their products. It's like it's kind of what they did to the pub. The breweries did to the pub industry um, in Britain. They turned them all into yeah. sharecroppers and indentured servants, all in debt and having to work for uh, pennies compared to maybe what their forefathers uh, earned uh, it, it, for doing the same work, basically. But um, that's an issue, isn't it? This is twenty first century peasant on the land. Yes, for sure. I think that the value of scarcity as well, when you drive down, um, so when you drive down the stock availability, you basically make it more scarce. That becomes more more valuable. So I think that that's really um, a key issue there is that someone's getting more for less. And it certainly isn't the people because they can't afford to, to be on the land. So they're facing the situation. I was listening to a uh, podcast just a couple of days ago of a, a farmer who spoke into the show and uh, he was having suicidal thoughts. Uh, over the course of the last year, simply because he can't um, support his family. So, and he was saying that he was in he was in Germany and that uh, he wanted to join the protest, but couldn't do so because ultimately his farm would suffer with him not being there. Um, mm. And I, I kind of wonder how much of that also is very prevalent. So you, we have this, this huge visibility of all these thousands of truckers on the road making their um, statements known, and rightfully so. But how many can't afford to do that? Um, just because they have to keep the, the, the lights on, keep the business running. Um, so I think the process is much, much larger than it is visibility, regardless of the size that we're seeing it at. 
Oh, much larger. That's the big invisible majority there that's not out on the street. Like you said, that's incredible. They can't afford to protest, literally. So that's going on. And just, I'm going to, before, when I get to this conscription story in Britain, because this is crazy, but uh, what, what, just explain to us what rewilding is, because this is a big yes. push, isn't it, in Britain? What, what is it? Yeah, so rewilding. So again, I, there's a there's a couple of farms that are near me have t that have taken up rewilding, and I spoke to the farmer quite in depth. So what he's explained to me is, for one acre of their farming, they want to, um, if you have, I know, a fifty acre field, for instance, the outside, uh, the C, the U shape of of effectively along along the uh, the woodlands or along any other farm lines are to be um, rewilded to go back to uh, a natural. Um, environment kind of it kind of almost becomes like nature's wasteland effectively he told me um so nature is allowed to regrow there in populous and to be left alone and the government was paying him 600 pounds per acre and he said that he was making more money that way by selling off four or five fields than he ever could have made on two years of having the stock and planting the crop that was on there so for him financially it was made a better decision so the idea is they want nature to take back over um these um farmed lands and when you look at certain methods and certain stories and certain books and articles that have come out from our great reset masters above shall we say they talk about how nature needs to take back over what the humans have done so again it plays into that narrative is that what's happening here is rewilding part of that reset or is it effectively just a way to reduce the stock availability and food and security of countries and areas I'm going to say all the above, all the yeah. above. And it also performs because, you know, after Brexit, after Brexit, the, you know, no longer European co common agricultural policy, no EU subsidies. So Britain's got to sort of keep those people happy, right? In the heartland, make sure they don't lose the votes. So the government's like, yeah, so the rewilding ticks that box as well. The subsidies box. So yeah, it's uh, uh, everybody's happy from Klaus Schwab uh, all the way down to Westminster. So I, I can see how this is uh, this has caught on, Christian. <laughs> so yeah, very much so. The um, the war front over here is, is an interesting perspective. So all the major kind of uh, red top newspapers that the the, the, uh, the Sun, the Mirror, etc., the um, the newspapers that are the tabloids are talking about a story over here. That is potentially conscription. And what this kind of came out of uh, the government, there was a chap here who um, he spoke out by saying, well, potentially, you know, if we're going to be facing a war scenario based on what um, Greg Grant Snaps has said, and here's a vision what he spoke about a couple of weeks ago was, well, we may potentially be seeing a theater of war with the likes of China, with the likes of uh, Iran, with Russia um, in the next three to five years. That's uncomfortable viewing, uh, but we have to be prepared for that now. Potentially, he's got something to say about that. And I understand how you might deal with that is to say, well, maybe we've got to put conscription back on the table. But because of that very term, you know, it's it's not very popular to think in peace times that we need to be essentially force mandating that people need to join up with the armed forces. Um, but that appears to be the case. He certainly he said this in a way that I thought when he said it appeared to be quite constructive. But it does come with the baggage of going, well, why would you need to do that unless we are going to war? And potentially, I guess the likelihood is we might well do. Um, that topic, that very word itself is now, it, it's trending on X. You can go and have a look of all the different hashtags and people who are talking about it. Some people are saying, well, I don't feel I've got a country worth defending anymore. Some people are saying, well, this doesn't feel like a homeland worth saving anymore. Some people are going, well, who is actually going to go? Is it going to be 18 to 45-year-olds like it used to be before? Um, it turns out 
There's another scandal here that's just hit the headlines today is that apparently more than 25% of the people in the British Army are actually under the age of 18. So it turns what? out that the reserve section, the cadets section, actually makes up 25% of our forces, which is staggering to say the least. Um, this comes in the back of an announcement that was made last week. I was reading through the data. If you go to gov.uk and have a look at the MOD, they have the largest NATO drill happening next week ever done since the Cold War, it says. Um, there's 20,000 uh, British troops who are going to be uh, motivated. They're going to be sent out. But the place they're going to is quite interesting. So they're going to the um, Middle East, basically. They're going to the Middle East and also Eastern Europe. There's going to be 20,000 soldiers who are going to boost and boast uh, a NATO um, strong line. Um, the Defence Secretary said um, this includes tanks, helicopters, heavy, heavy artillery, going right out to the front lines of Russia. Why would that be the case? Why would they need to do that to show a, a solidarity strength of force from NATO, led by Britain, to show that we have the strength and capability against that, when it appears to be, and I'm sure Russia has seen it, we can't even have the people. We don't have enough people Is it within our military. I'm sure the UK column, the likes of uh, many different uh, news journalists have been speak speaking out about it over the last 10 years. We've been reducing our army year on year on year, and uh, our armed forces in the military have been scaled back to the point where it almost seems, do we even need an army? And we think at one time, that was the plan, that was the case, as there was the European Defence Union on the uh, on the horizon. That has become a formidable place, and that hasn't been mentioned other than documents that speculated exists, but basically it's a standing army that Europe would occupy. Um, NATO and that union themselves are at odds with each other, because of course they have different end goals. But uh, what's going to see, there's going to be, obviously, submarines are going out there, there's going to be a strike carrier group going out to the Bering Sea, um, so this is the army's plan to show their strength and their solidarity to this joint allied force out there led by us uh, tactically. We also, this past week, had the Britain show off its Dragonfire laser, which is basically as, as a high-powered laser mounted that could shoot down aerial targets. And I don't know if you know this, about a year ago, China showed off, it had a laser of its own that was mounted on one of its battleships um, that, I guess, forced us to make uh, an equal equal operating um equivalent so we're now seeing clearly a boast who's who's got more weapons than you who's who's going to be going to war who has more strength this kind of saber rattling with the tips of the sabers going so they're showing off what they have showing off what they can do and that is very worrying because i think there'll be a certain point where someone wants to show what they can do um against the enemy and we appear to be wanting to push that line yeah, it is. It is true. Yeah, Britain's been dismantling its uh, military forces for like the last 20 years at least. And to the point where, I mean, they're offering people early retirement, all sorts of stuff, you know, extra pensions and so forth. And then all of a sudden they want to ramp it back up again. You know, and I'm like, they, 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 so they say, oh, I think they came out today, Christian said, oh, oh, this talk of conscription, uh, that's not what we meant and all this. No, it is what they meant because they need to ramp up this kind of NATO drive against Russia and the difference between a Europe, this is an interesting d debate, obviously, but the difference between a European collective defense force and nato is one of those is run by the united states and one of them is not so nato is run by the u.s and britain period so nato's end goals as you correctly said christian are washington and london's end goals and not the rest of the member states are along for the ride 
you just look at the numbers and you look at their reactions to things. They have to be pulled by their ear for everything. Uh, but a European collective defense force is not run by the U.S. This is why the United States ultimately doesn't want to have that. Um, and if they did, they'd want to be absolutely in control of it. And they can't unless they can get Brussels in charge of foreign policy. And if they can get Brussels in charge of every single EU member state's foreign policy, military policy, et cetera, NATO's kind of playing a role in harmonizing that at the moment with Ukraine. So we could have that down the road, but the U.S. have to control it. Britain has to control it. That might mean Britain getting back in the EU, by the way, um, as one of the sort of byproducts of that. And I've, I have spoken to uh, chief aides of members of parliament who acknowledge that that's a very strong possibility in the next couple of years, um, and they admitted that. So uh, so that's an interesting dynamic. I think we're we're kind of seeing something happening here, Christian, and they're, they're, they're maneuvering, they're jockeying for position, but listen, looking at what's the, the human toll in Ukraine, the trench warfare, the amount of Ukrainians that have died fighting Russia, I cannot see any benefit in throwing uh, anybody from European country or Britain into that meat grinder, literally for what? It's almost like it's human sacrifice at this point, looking at Ukraine. It's absolutely disaster the for, for the country of Ukraine. I think it would be the same for Poland or Germany or any other European country that thinks that they're going to defeat Russia in a conventional war. But listen, we're not dealing with rational actors here, Christian. Uh, we're dealing with uh, megalomaniacs, profiteers, oligarchs, all sorts, all sorts of other miscreants uh, on this. So we, it's all great that we're having a rational discussion on this, but I'm wondering if that's happening uh, at, the, at the level of government. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. Uh, your final thoughts uh, before we break for this program, Christian? Well, yeah, ultimately, when we talk about conscription, um, you've got facts that don't line up. I mean, why would a government want compulsory conscription if it's actively looking to reduce the armed forces to save money? Um, it doesn't make any sense. And I think that that just that very sentence there, I think if that's said in Parliament, I think everyone's just going to be looking around at each other going, oh, yeah, we, we need to save money, don't we? <laughs> I mean, myself in Plymouth, uh, you know, just out the door, uh, yeah. Plymouth Harbor, I see that aircraft carrier all the time, the British aircraft carrier off the coast of Cornwall. No planes on it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no planes it on it. It's not being deployed anywhere. Like, what's it doing? It's just driving around Britain, parking up in different places, doing drills, doing like you know different drills and you know interoperability exercises with it but it's not like being deployed to the red sea or anything uh it doesn't have enough staff i think if i'm not mistaken doesn't have the yep. planes that's like, right what is it running around yeah <laughs> yeah it's like i can't i think there's even problems with it sailing in certain temperature water like the engine won't work or something i have so heard that yeah that was something to do with like a uh, the engine had stopped when it hit certain um, choppiness of water. And it's like, this is supposed to be like a 40 billion aircraft carrier. Why has this happened? Why it doesn't have any planes is beyond me. But then again, we sold all the planes we had um, basically to the solution companies and to, to the US. I mean, it's supposed to have Eurofighters on board um, and they're not ready yet. They won't be ready till 2027, which is, you, you have a, a ship ready to go with state-of-the-art tech or whatever, but you have no vehicles on it for use so is it going to be that the u.s take advantage of that piece of equipment i don't know uh they'll they'll they'll, they'll probably drive it uh into uh glasgow or something and turn it into luxury flats or you know maybe a theme park maybe a museum i don't know lots of potential there lots of ideas christian james research assistant for the show thank you again for joining us and, and look out to 21st century wire christian has an excellent article coming up about the 
farmers protests right across Europe and the world. Looking forward to that as well. Thank you, Christian, for joining us. Thank you very much, Patrick. Pleasure as always. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is Christian James. Fantastic lineup of stories. A lot of stuff to to digest. And also big thanks to Trish Wood, investigative journalist from Canada, also in the second hour. And then before that, Brian Fail, investigative journalist covering election integrity, as they say, in the United States. Not much integrity by the looks of it. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. It's been real. It's been great. Appreciate you guys. We'll be back with another big...